Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Slate Money is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. And buy Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. Hello, and welcome to the exotic fantasies edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, joined as always by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Happy Valentine's Day, Felix. Thank you, Kathy. And Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. You know what I'm in love with? This podcast. <laughs> Because this is a lovely, a lovely podcast. It is. It's full of love. It's full of the love that the Greeks have for the Germans. Wait, no, that's not right. But we're going to talk about Greece. <laughs> we're going to we're going to see how well Jordan can pronounce Yanis Varoufakis. Oh, not we're, well at we're, all. We're going to talk about consolidation in the online travel industry, where Expedia has been buying everyone. They bought Travelocity and Orbitz in the space of about six weeks, and then. Because it's Valentine's Day and we're feeling romantic, we're going to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. We're going to take the financial angle. What is it that makes billionaires so sexy? And are they sexy? Are That's they a, sexy? Are they sexy? Let's let's challenge the premise also. <laughs> let's let's start from first principles here, Felix. We will not start from the first principles. We will start with Greece, Jordan. Yes. We're going to come back to the sexy billionaires. Yes. So speaking of exotic fantasies, the week started 
with uh, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras giving this speech about all the things he was going to demand from the European Union and the Troika, their lenders, you know, in upcoming negotiations. He was going to do away with the bailout and all the austerity that came with it. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit here to give a little bit of context. Yeah, sure. That Greece, as we all know, got into a lot of trouble. And in order to get out of that trouble, it had to borrow a lot of money from these people called the Troika. It's the IMF, the EU, the European Central Bank. And that money came with strings attached. That money came with conditions. And a lot of those conditions can be summed up in a single word, which is Austerity. austerity. And what does austerity mean? Well, it means things like they have to cut government spending so that they have a surplus. They have to do things like to privatize national assets like power companies and things like that. They have to raise taxes and uh, get people who weren't paying their taxes they should have been to start paying. All of these conditions, all of these no. austere conditions didn't go down well with the Greek electorate. No, which is uh, its economy has turned into, I think the technical term is a uh, flaming hole in the ground over the past few years. I mean, they are in a depression still. So one of the ways somebody explained this to me is that you might recall that like there was a restructuring of the Greek bonds in 2012. And that was supposed to help them out. Yeah. But in fact, their debt has in some sense grown since then, even though that was supposed to help because their economy has shrunk so much that relative to their GDP, their debt is now bigger than it was before that restructuring. So we'll see that the austerity measures have really put a damper on the actual um, economy. In any case, where we have arrived now is that the Greek electorate fed up with these austerity policies which were imposed by the hated Germans. And it is really, really impossible to overstate how much the Greeks hate the Germans. They elected a party called Syriza, which is the Marxists, basically. It's the hard left party Mm -hmm. in Greece, um, who won the election on a platform of no more austerity. We're not going to put up with this anymore. Yes. And so early this week, the new prime minister, Alexis Tsipras, gave his first big speech before Parliament, laying out his plans, going into negotiations with the with, with its e- European lenders, essentially. And the reason that negotiations were coming up was because, essentially, the, the first bailout, the first set of loans uh, were set to expire. And they needed to either extend the current deal or, in Greece's ideal world, come up with something new. Initially, it caused a lot of panic because Greece was taking this extremely hard line. And, of course, the Germans were staring back at them and saying, uh, no, no thanks. We're not going to uh, change the terms on which we lent you all this money. Uh, and just to give you a sense of this, it got to the point where Cyprus was saying he was going to literally demand German war reparations for World War II. I mean, this, wow. this was how expansive this wish list was. I also want to throw in that, yeah. like, you know, Felix has mentioned a couple of times that Greeks yeah. don't like Germans, but Germans don't like Greeks. No, that too. And, <laughs> and in particular, you're seeing a lot of rhetoric, especially coming yeah. from not necessarily the German politicians who are probably not going to do this publicly, but this rhetoric around like, oh, the Greeks don't know how to um, fulfill their contracts. And they're basically being treated like children that need to be spanked. Yeah, I think there is a sort of morality play in it, like you have to punish the debtors who are, you know, kind of spent all this money before. But so here's what's happening now. They began meetings earlier this week. They haven't come to any agreements yet, but it seems like both sides are kind of moving towards the center now, despite all of the really heated rhetoric. Um, the Greeks are saying, okay, we're not going to try to get rid of the entire bailout. We'll abide by 70% of it. And then we want these other terms that we'll agree to with another international organization that isn't the hated Troika. It's the the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, which they just like better. And the Germans are saying, okay, well, 
if you abide by most of the terms of the bailout, maybe we can give you a little bit of break on how big your budget surplus has to be. You can spend a little bit more money, essentially. And so my takeaway from this week is all this kind of chest thumping and heated rhetoric and whatnot is sort of working. It seems like maybe the Greeks are going to get some kind of a deal out of this. I'm curious to hear your guys' take on that. I'm glad that you're optimistic about this <laughs> because, frankly, I'm not. I'm, okay. looking, I'm looking at the noises being made by the head of the EU, Jerome Drisselblum, and the German finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, and they're being pretty hardline. And mm-hmm. they're also saying it's important to realize here that the Greeks only really have one upper hand in negotiations, which is if you don't continue to roll over the loans and lend us new money to cover our budget deficits, then we're going to just be forced to default again and probably even leave the euro. And you you don't want that, do you now? Oh, and by the way, because this might be confusing with me talking about budget deficits and Jordan talking about budget surpluses, the reason why that's the same thing is that what Jordan is talking about is something known as the primary surplus, yes. which is your surplus before debt repayments. And then yeah. but you still need to repay your debt on top of that. Yeah. And that turns you into a deficit, which means you still need to wind up borrowing money on net. Everyone agrees that Greece's debt is unsustainable and needs to go down. No one is under any illusions about that. But the lenders want to keep it high because that gives them control over Greece and they want to keep that control. What Greece wants is less control from the lenders. And I worry that there's been a lot of noise now coming from Brussels that actually they could live with Greece exiting the euro. So one of the things that I've understood in the last week reading this story is that the situation has changed a lot in the last couple of years, partly because of who owns the debt at this point. So I guess a couple of years ago when the Greece started to look bad, it was owned a lot by French banks and other private yeah. institutions. But during the restructuring or the lead up to the restructuring, it was basically bought by the governments. So like, like the government well, of what France. happened was that the restructuring wiped out most of the private sector debt. The lenders to Greece took a 70% haircut. They lost 70% of the face value of their debt right there. And then the new lenders to Greece were the Troika, right? Mm-hmm. So Because the private sector isn't willing to lend to Greece anymore. So right now, most of the debt is official sector debt rather than private sector debt. Right. So how does that play into whether um, the European Union is willing to let Greece go? Uh, I think it complicates it because it's essentially Germans lending to the Greeks. It's been nationalized. So it's German taxpayers. Yeah, to some, to some degree, yeah. It's, it's voters have an interest in this now, and that makes the politics stick here for officials in Germany and, um, you know, in, uh, in Holland and wherever. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know if that helps or hurts, I guess, because, I, I mean, a private bank might be a, more, a little bit more willing to negotiate a haircut if they thought it was just purely in their own financial interest. But Felix, what do you think about that? For me, the key question here is not actually the makeup of the debt. We know who owns the debt. We know what the dynamics are. And, you know, if the ECB takes a hit to its balance sheet, like, it doesn't matter. It's a central bank. Central bank balance sheets really don't matter that much. Yep. What's much more interesting is the fact that Brussels is much less worried about contagion than it was in 2012. You mean to Spain and Italy? Exactly. If Greece had exited the euro in 2011 or 2012, then what that would have done would have created this massive capital flight out of Spain and Italy. And Spain and Italy would have followed suit. There would be this really nasty domino effect. 
And I think what the Europeans are doing now is they're looking at Greece and they're looking at Spain and they're looking at Italy and they're saying, actually, we're not worried about that. We think that Greece can leave and leave Spain and Italy intact. So you think, do you think Greece is going to leave? Sounds like you do. If the Germans basically call the Greeks bluff, that is a real possibility. I'm not saying it's probable, but I'm saying that the probability is probably higher than it has been in a very long time. I would say also on the contagion issue, there's almost the opposite problem now, where I think the sense in Europe is that if they give too much ground to the Greeks, that's going to encourage other countries like Spain to vote for their leftist political parties, like uh, Podemos is in Spain. I think it's still the most popular in the polls right now. It's sort of the equivalent of the Greek leftists in Spain. And they would come to power and essentially ask for the same kind of deal. And that's something that, you know, the European leaders don't really want to see repeated. I will say the reason I'm optimistic has less to do with the Germans giving a lot of ground and a little bit more to do with the fact that I, I, I think Greece is not run by irrational people. And the fact that they are beginning to kind of tone down and step back a little bit says that if they can get something and having shown that they you know quote, stood up to the Troika and go back to their voters and say, you know, we brought some dignity back to Greece, which already you're hearing that rhetoric that, you know, at least we're showing some spine finally, you know, we're not just rolling over. That might be enough. Just a few concessions might diffuse this growing crisis. And it's on this on the Germans part, they want to be able to say we didn't give them everything. They no, want. we gave them a few crumbs, essentially. But, but if they but, if I mean, depending on how the, the plan actually works out, it might actually really help Greece. Officially, their debt might not go down, but they might have much longer to pay yeah. for it. And the, the interest rate might, yeah. might be lower. And like being able to spend a little bit more money would be good for them. I mean, I think just, just setting aside the potential for a deal, I think most of the world realizes that Greece's government needs to be able to spend a little bit more to help its people through a depression. So let's hope. I, I, I like the fact that Jordan is optimistic on Valentine's Day. It makes, it makes me happy. I'm feeling the love, Felix. We have a sponsor this week you will be glad to hear. Stamps.com is sponsoring Slate Money. They will let you get official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk. Use your own computer and your own printer, and it even gives you special postage discounts that you can't get at the post office, so you'll never pay full price for postage again. We have a special offer for you. If you use the promo code SLATEMONEY, there's a no-risk trial, and you get a $110 bonus offer, which includes up to $55 of free postage. You can use that on your packages. You can use that on your letters. If you have a small business, this is kind of designed right for you. So this is what you do. You go to stamps.com. You click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you enter Slate Money. So that's stamps.com. Enter Slate Money. You can do that, can't you, Kathy? I can. Excellent. All right. We are going to talk about, do we have a monopoly? When I was growing up in England, I was always taught that a monopoly was where you had more than 25% market share. That was sort of the rule of thumb. And certainly, if you have an industry where there are only really two players, then that looks like you have a monopoly situation. Kathy, what is going on in online travel? Okay, so this week, Expedia bought Orbitz, which also owns cheap tickets, for $1.6 billion. Um, they'd already bought Travelocity in January for $280 million. And so Expedia is getting, like, bulking up at this point. Um, now, going back to the concept of whether this creates a monopoly, um, so... We, 
It, the answer is no. The answer is that right now we have two big players. At this point, Expedia is big. We have Priceline, which is also very big. We also have another player onto the scene, which everyone's afraid of, which is Google Flights. And Google Flights is probably the thing that's going to take over the world. Um, so it, this is, uh, although it sounds like, you know, you know these names and they're all big and they're getting bigger and it sounds like scary stuff like big banks. I don't actually think that's what's going to happen. So what makes you think that Google is going to be able to win this? Because every time that people worry about Google bigfooting into a new area and taking over, it never seems to happen. Um, well, Google Flights is getting really good. I don't know if you've used it, but it, it also picks up on whether you're trying to travel. Um, so it's just, it's very useful. But I think one of the actually most important things to know about this entire industry is that it's really not about flights at all. Even though it sounds like it is, because we, whenever we want to buy a flight, we go to one of these things. The real competition is for hotels. Flights um, are highly regulated. And in particular, all these different um, online services, they have to sell, by FAA regulation, have to sell airplane flights for exactly the same amount. And in fact, they don't even very, make very much money on it. They only make like five bucks every time they sell a flight. They make five bucks for the airline. The airline gives them five bucks for the, you know, for the commission. Um, the real competition is in hotels, where there's lots and lots of different hotels that all want to get sold and they give 20% commission. So that's the secret. The secret is like, this is not about airplane flights. Um, this is a competition for hotel bookings. That, that's really interesting to me. So the consolidation we're seeing, where now it's basically two big, well, two big players and Google. So it's, you've got Expedia, and then you've got Priceline, and you've got Google. Is this, I mean, is consolidation good or bad for consumers here? Well, I mean, as long as the regulations stay the same, I'm t- what I'm explaining to you is that yeah. this is like a commodity. It's like a fixed-price oh, commodity. So, but what about for hotels? Or is that good? Because it seems right. like that's where there's competition, that's and that's right. what matters. So is that good or bad? That's a great, great point, and, the, and that's an important question. Uh, I think about it as actually pretty good for the consumer. At the, at the end of the day, even if you have only a three different platforms, they are platforms, and the hotels are competing against each other on those platforms. So the pricing for those hotels for the consumer is probably not going to go up just because there's one huge, even if there were just one huge platform, mm-hmm. those hotels you know, in Kansas City would be competing against each other for the consumer's dollar. Interesting. So you and me, anyone who wants to book a hotel or flight, we're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't really going to affect our, our pocketbook. Is there any reason for hotel chains to worry about this? Well, yes. I mean, thank you for asking that. It's a great question. And by the way, the same thing I'm saying about ho- hotels is also true for rental cars. Rental cars also are high commission um, percentage-wise, um, and the, they compete for consumers' dollars on these platforms. If there's only one platform, mm-hmm. then yes, because like think about Amazon. You know, like There's only one bookseller, if, yeah. if, you, if you will. Not really, but there's one sort of major bookseller. What happens is that um, sort of sellers, the people who are trying to sell stuff on Amazon, have to basically do whatever Amazon says, right? So when I'm saying like hotels give 20% of the money they make back to the platform, that 20% could be 25% if there's a monopoly on that platform. I see. But as long as you've got a few platforms competing very hard for these listings, then there are basically... But they're not. I think that's wrong, Jordan. No, they're not. Because... It's not an exclusive thing. It's not okay. like the platforms are insisting that a hotel only be with them and not be with someone else. So they're not really competing for listings. Every hotel 
is listing itself on every platform. So I'm not quite. I well, don't moreover, like you can like if savvy consumers just don't even like they just look at the hotels themselves. They can go straight to a hotel website. Well, so th- this is kind of what I'm wondering. So if you if they are going to list, I guess if they are going to list themselves on every platform, right? And there are just a few platforms left. Wouldn't it be easy for those platforms just to say, "Okay, I'm going to raise my commission a little bit," and then the other ones say, "Oh, look, uh, Expedia just uh, Priceline says Expedia did it. We might as well do it too." And since there are fewer of these platforms competing, be easy for them. Yeah, but then then you have like the disruptive startup who says, "I'm only going to charge 15 percent." Okay. Yeah, but and, and I guess that's the big question which I have: Is this something where consumers are going to? comparison shot across platforms. I can understand going to Priceline or to Expedia or to Google and using those different in using one of those to compare different hotels and say I I rather stay at Hotel X rather than at Hotel Y because Hotel X is cheaper. But do they also having decided that they want to stay at Hotel X or even not having decided they want to hotel stay at Hotel X, do they then go to Priceline and Expedia and Orbitz and Google and all these different places and see what the best deal they can get for any given hotel is? Or do they just, once they found the cheap hotel, do they just book it? That's a really good question. And um, the experience I had working as a data scientist in this industry is that it really depends on whether it's a um, business traveler in which case it's they are not as sensitive to price. And in fact, it's probably not even the person traveling who's booking it. They don't really care. Or if it's a like a you know fantasy vacation, exotic vacation, in which case people are very price sensitive and do all sorts of research. Interesting. So yeah, the, the, in fact, like the the industry I worked in was sort of built on the assumption that people will will check very all the different sites: Expedia, Travelocity, Cheap Tickets, and Orbits, and and Priceline. And now it's kind of curious to me: like, are companies like the one I worked at going to just evaporate now that they're all the same company? All I will say is that in my recent experience of flying wherever you're trying to book your flights you can look as you say the flights are fungible you can get the best prices off hitmonk or kayak or expedia or orbits or wherever the lesson i've learned is don't use any of those sites to book the flight and book the flight on the airline's website because that gives you so much more flexibility if you ever need to change anything or go you know try and get an upgrade at the airport or anything like that i absolutely agree i would always suggest that and one more thing that I'll, I'll suggest a secret that people don't know. It's often cheaper if you want to go from A to B to uh, actually book from A to C that, that goes through B. Yeah, but that's illegal. It's not illegal. They want it to be illegal, but it's not. But if they catch you, they won't let you return. That they, th- that's why you have to do one ways. Yeah, but that's true. They don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't like it. But, if, but people do it. And people in the industry I like do it. it. That's you, what they do. Are you on the lamb from the law? Well, here's a way to save on your flight to Mexico. And by the way, obviously you can't check in bags if you do that. <laughs> Okay, so we have another sponsor this week, which is Citrix Go to Meeting. And this is a cold week, or at least it is in New York. There's bad weather, there's people homesick, it's freezing out, and holding a meeting can be a logistical nightmare, even though it is something important. Unless you use Citrix Go to Meeting to meet with people online, you get to collaborate and get work done and not even leave the comfort of your home. It's much more appealing. What you do is you use Citrix GoToMeeting to meet with the clients and the coworkers and everyone you need to meet, and you get to work smarter because anyone can join. They can use their phone or their tablet or their computer. They have their webcam. You can have HD video conferencing. You can share screens. You can get real-time feedback. 
And it's just clicking a link. It's just as easy as that. You're in a web browser. So this is what you do. You try GoToMeeting free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's it. GoToMeeting.com. Couldn't be easier. All right. Now, this is the sexy bit of the show. (laughs) I'm going to use my sexy voice. Okay. And I should mention here that Kathy is actually a sex advice columnist in her spare time. It's true. Wait, really? So I've never really. What? You don't know about Ompithia on Map Babe? Yeah. Nope. But I'm gonna find out about it. <laughs> you will. <laughs> so Kathy's the expert, but I don't know how much well, okay, this is this is the question I have for the sex advice columnist. Is there something particularly sexy about sex with a billionaire? Because this is we're we're tying this in, of course, to the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, and people are really concentrating on the kinky bits of the sex. But since this is slate money, I'm going to concentrate on the financial bits of the sex. Christian Grey, the the kinky billionaire, is not only kinky but also a billionaire, and I want to know if that's sexy. Well, first of all, you're going to have to ask me again at. 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, which is the only <laughs> ticket I could find because it, I guess it opens Saturday. Yeah. Um, and it is sold out. It, it opens on Valentine's Day. You can imagine that everybody, everybody wants to take their Valentine's date there. So I looked and I searched and I could not find tickets. Um, so I was like, I'll just go to the very first showing on Sunday morning and 9.15 a.m. That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> And I'll be ready. So the one of the reasons I'm postponing answering this is because um, the book itself, which I read, obviously, obviously. everyone, I have not that. read the book. Oh I'm come on, you! No, I've I, not read the book. I, well, I have not read the book either. That's ridiculous. But I did do. I did manage to do a search for the term billionaire, which appears. How do you three guys? Times. How do you guys even like? live in the modern world I, if you don't read that stuff. That's I how mean, you keep up. I know. In any case, all right. So I've, Kathy's feel, not wait, answering feel, the question. Felix. Jordan, who, what, is, what is the wealthiest... But I, I'm not going to ask you that question. Are you going to ask the wealthiest person I've slept with? I'm not going <laughs> to ask that question. I'm going to ask this. Felix. Is there something sexy about <laughs> so, sleeping with someone who's really rich? So I have a... Um, I'm going to start with the billionaire aspect of this because I was doing some research this morning. I, I just started going down the Forbes billionaire list to see if there was... Anyone on there, anywhere on there, I could picture in the role of Christian Grey, who is, he's basically this, apparently, having not read the book, but having read plenty of synopses, he's apparently a 27-year-old telecommunications tycoon of some sort, uh, who is a billionaire, and he's just, you know, model handsome, six-pack abs, looked like he just fell out of a Calvin Klein ad, whatever. I, it's there aren't really many billionaires who fit that profile. I was talking with a colleague <laughs> in the office. The closest we could come, I, I, I kid you not, I'm, I'm sad to say this was maybe if you looked at him in the right light, possibly Sean Parker when he was a little bit younger. Most billionaires are kind of a pale, flabby, middle-aged to older men. The only thing you, they really have going for them in terms of sex appeal that you can imagine is probably the money. However, some people do find, uh, it was Henry Kissinger said power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. I think some people think that cold hard cash might trump it. So I think, yeah, there are some people who think that wealth or the things that wealth can, having access to that kind of wealth and lifestyle is probably sexy, right? Well, listen, I was going to say that the book is so badly written that it's impossible to actually know whether it's billionaires are Can sexy. We, right, let's... But, um, but I do have a lot of friends who <laughs> have find, slept with billionaires, find powerful men and, and rich men incredibly sexy. So I know it's real. I know it's real. It doesn't work for me personally. Although I should say that I, I grew up in a sort of um, uh, academic household. So for me, 
you know, it, it was embarrassing for people to be showing off their Rolex watches. But if it was let drop that there was like a full professor from Harvard in the room, that was that was hot. Yeah, I that was really that, hot. That was hot. Yeah, but that was like <laughs> that's the the replacement for just cold hard cash. Well, it's I, like stat. It's a different kind of stat. Well, I think the, the cash goes with the power. The money and the you really the money and the power can't be separated. I probably misspoke earlier, and and I think that's part of the isn't that part of the shtick with this book is that his line is like I exercise control in all aspects of my life or whatever <laughs> like, and that ties into the BDSM like it's all part of his like powerful mystique. Well, so this brings up a very important question for Felix, which is how much (laughs) sex in the bathroom stalls was happening at Davos? None. Like, really none. Because if power were an aphrodisiac, you would expect there to be some. Right. I mean, this is kind of like an obvious litmus test. Like, you'd you'd expect it to be sort of like Olympic Village style, people just going at it, right? Well, sharing a a single (laughs) ski outfit. This is the probably the single biggest misconception about Davos from people who haven't been there. They think that it's a, going to be a town which is teeming with with hookers and people trying to like bed a billionaire. And the problem is, it's so unbelievably difficult to find a place to stay <laughs> that really, unless you're connected to a billionaire already, there's no way you're going to be able to get there. So the only time that what you might call the sex workers are ever spotted in, in Davos is the, the annual party which is thrown by Oleg Deripaska who's one of these um, Russian oligarchs he um, quite famously has everything at his party he has the champagne and the caviar and the bands flown in from Russia and you know a few escorts floating around and you walk up to them and ask what they do and they say I am translator <laughs> well, wait a second. Like, let's. Uh, but that's let's, it. You really I, don't see them anywhere else. But I'm not asking about sex workers, right? The whole point is that, like, this is so hot that it, you know, I don't need to pay for it, right? Isn't that the point? Right. But the, but the point is, if you're not a sex worker, if you're not getting flown in by Oleg Deripaska, where are you going to stay? Well, yeah, but like, yeah, what but about what if just you're attendees? just a participant? What about and you happen to be? But you know, it's so heavily male. Like, isn't, isn't the gender divide? <laughs> Am I just saying something crazy? No, like, no, no. There are women at Davos. I see. Right? How, it, there, there aren't. There, <laughs> There, there aren't very many single women at Davos. They don't there aren't single. very many single excuse men. Excuse me, excuse me. They don't have to be single. <laughs> if, we're, if we can talk about BDSM, we can also talk about cheating, can't we? So is it possible that, you know, a female delegate from MIT will hook up with a random hedge fund billionaire? This is possible. And, and actually, I believe I, I'm not going to name any names, but I did see one sort of journalist hedge funder pairing while I was there. But it's not like the Olympic Village where, like, what happens here stays here. It's not. Oh, like... I'm sure it's like that. Well, that's... <laughs> I just don't think it's nearly as common. Also, I mean, uh, coming back to the whether or not billionaires are, are hot issue, I mean, the Olympic Village, that, I mean, people there are hot. Like, there's yeah, no. They are is, actually hot. They are, yes. they are objectively, <laughs> like, they are the Olympian ideal that's of the human true. body. Whereas right. Davos is a slightly different scenario. The hedge funder journalist pairing, though, that's appropriate because that basically is almost Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the whole plot is that she's like a college journalist who goes to uh, interview him at his office and is just entranced. I suspect that. Jordan actually has. No, I have not read that. I told you, I read a lot. I read some very... I will tell you, I am... So my plan for seeing this movie was I was going to get, like, fill a Nalgene bottle of, like, you know, Chardonnay or Pinot Grigio and then, like, go watch it with, like, a bunch of buddies. Just, like, have, like, a girls' night out for dudes. My husband would not go to this movie with me, so I got a girlfriend to to agree to it. But I I made her... Like, I made a list of conditions that she would go, and I was like, you have to consent. (laughs) 
<laughs> you have to you have to sign this consent form before we go together. That's that's and she, she's that's also it. a plot point. Apparently, is that there? Oh, I, yeah. I know I'm making it look like I spent a lot of time <laughs> with this book, but like he, there's like a haggling over her, her like signing a contract over I'm, what I'm he the one who's absolutely. I am proud to say I read Fifty Shades of Grey. You know what? Maybe I just on think, my Kindle, so no one. I, can need, see. I, I know enough about it that it may, maybe I should just read it. So, and, I mean, one of the things which we, I mean, billionaires are famously assiduous about prenuptial contracts are there now like pre-sex contracts as yes well? yes at least in this book there are do you think it's actually kind of hot wait do you I, think that's I, ever I, you know because after all like that way you get to discuss what you actually want which is so rare that was actually that's a great idea I, i've heard this argument about on campus like affirmative consent rules essentially the idea is you're just talking dirty to each other that's sort of yeah people <laughs> people say that's not sexy that yeah, could be really yeah, sexy so this is I, mean, I don't know if the actual signing of the name on paper but in a way you're just kind of writing a, a kind of contractual erotica right business that's model what, business <laughs> model <laughs> there's a startup idea in Felix, somewhere. Felix is <laughs> the frown on Felix's face <laughs> right now is, he, he sees dollar signs this, this is a I moment see, where yeah, you really I wish you were watching out. this on, on web TV <laughs> rather than just Anyway, but so yeah, that's so, that's Fifty Shades. Have, 50 a, have a great Valentine's Day, everyone. Yeah, yes, at and the movie theater. Have have yeah, love and romance, and maybe even contractually specified sex. And who knows? Maybe you'll find a doughy billionaire of your own. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Jordan, what's your number this week? Uh, my number is forty-five. Um, and that is the age at which the average American can pretty much give up on getting a significant raise in their life. Uh, I too. There is a new paper by uh, a group of economists, mostly out of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, um, looking at just kind of how earnings evolve over a life cycle. Specifically, they're using Social Security Administration data on men. So I guess they are going to do a similar one for women later. And one of the really interesting findings about it is that First of all, the biggest increases in your earnings tend to happen in the first 10 years of your career. By the time you get to... About, is this in absolute terms or percentage terms? The biggest percentage of the gro- overall growth uh, is what we're talking about here. So, But then once you get to 45, about all but the top 10% of lifetime earners, on average, see their income begin to decline. And there are lots of reasons for this. One of them is a lot of people just start working fewer hours as they get a little bit older. But in general, it's extremely rare to see significant raises after that age. That's when you give up on ever being able to save enough for college for yeah. your kids. Yeah. Just like, uh, that's great. My, my number is $100,000. I needed to throw this in here somewhere, which is the cost per person to attend the Jeb Bush fundraiser in New York, Ugh. which is some kind of a record, I think. But they don't seem to have any difficulty selling these tickets to Wall Street types at $100,000 Shocking. Shocking, no difficulty. Wow. But that's, I mean, it just, I what, can, what do I don't quite understand the appeal of, of fundraisers, but $100,000 a ticket is just, wow. Well, I think the appeal is like, you now have access to Jeb Bush. I mean, <laughs> not <laughs> Yeah, me. yeah I, 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 that is something which I will never understand. Kathy, what's your number? Well, listen, it's Valentine's Day, so I'm going all out. Um, I know it's going to happen anyway, so you might as well feel good about Put it. My number is three. <laughs> Sorry. No. no Jordan. Three. Uh, <laughs> go see that movie right now. Three good reasons to eat chocolate. 
Because you're going to be eating chocolate, so you might as well. So you're going to you're, you're saying there are exactly three good I've, reasons. I to heard eat three. I heard three. So I wrote them down because I was like, "Whoo!" That balances the two I know that are bad reasons, um, reasons not to eat chocolate, and I like the positive one. So the the first one is that we all know that they're antioxidants. They're flavonoids, which are very bitter and sometimes are taken out. Um, so if you're having milk chocolate, that's not helpful. But if you're having bitter dark chocolate, it might be helpful. Um, and then the second two both are due to this. Um, caffeine-like chemical called theobromine, or theobromine, excuse me. On the one hand, it helps your heart. It lowers your um, blood pressure. And the other thing that's crazy is it helps your tooth enamel. It actually improves your teeth. Wait, chocolate can improve your teeth? Yes. My dentist has been lying to me all these years? Instead of brushing my teeth tonight, I'm just going to have some more chocolate. (laughs) But there's a caution. Don't eat too much chocolate, especially if you're a dog, because you might die. I feel feel like... There are many, many more reasons to eat chocolate than those. Starting with it tastes good. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all sorts of reasons. So if you gentle listeners would please write into us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com with all of your reasons to eat chocolate. I'm sure that Kathy is going to be able to come up with more than three. Those three are just, I think we're just scratching the, the, the top of the little chocolate bar right here. Also, if any listeners would like to write in and suggest which real-life billionaire could be cast in Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey, because I obviously didn't do a very good job. I mean, I, I tried, but I yeah. think I may, have, I may have flopped in that task. So if anybody would like to volunteer a suggestion, please, please go ahead. And I, I mean, so. I know nothing about his sexual appetite, but I have to say I think that Max Levchin is pretty good looking. He, he keeps himself in very good shape. I'll go back. You know, I was working off these tiny headshots that Forbes is using, so I, yeah, I might not, they might not have all been like the greatest light. So please and then, wait. of course, there's that, that, what's the name of that woman who set up the um, biotechnology company where she's trying to do a new way of taking pills and vaccines and stuff? Anyway, she's kind of. I just want to say it doesn't really have to be billion. Billion's a lot. It is a lot. Can we? Can we like (laughs) a million isn't big enough anymore? But can we just be like you know multi-millionaire? That's enough. Yeah. Once you've got into the nine figures range, throw us a bone here. (laughs) Uh, Wow! What a what a double entendre to end on. We're going going, going to leave it there. (laughs) Yeah. We really are going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. Do send us emails. Slate money at slate dot com. Many thanks to Stan Alcorn for putting up with this um, episode and actually producing it. Um, The (laughs) managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. So for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon wishing you a lovely, happy Valentine's week. We'll talk to you next week, of course, on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.